My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to episode six of season two. I'm very proud of the fact that this is a global show with guests and listeners from all over the world. But this week, I'm going to introduce you to the first guest who literally crossed an ocean to record his interview. His name is Daniel Betcher, and he's the founder and owner of The Intrepid Wendell, a very unusual bespoke jewellery salon in Washington, D.C. Daniel goes to extraordinary lengths in the pursuit of excellence, and it's typical of his dedication that when I invited him on the show, he insisted on flying from Washington to London so that we could record the interview in person. Daniel is someone I consider to be an artist in business, and he tells some great stories about the founding of his company and the adventures he's had along the way. So it's a really interesting peek behind the curtain of a very high-end creative business. Here at 21st Century Creative HQ, I'm recording more interviews for season three, which is shaping up very nicely. And, you know, I almost had to pinch myself this morning when it struck me that I actually have a show now. This is something I was thinking about and planning for a couple of years at least before I took the plunge. And now here I am in the middle of it, talking to inspiring guests, hearing their amazing stories and sharing them with you. And one of the best parts is hearing from listeners who tell me they're enjoying the show and it's helping them on their journey. Well, if that's the case for you, then let me say thank you and tell you how encouraging it is to know that you're out there listening. And, you know, if you're working in a creative field you love, on projects you're proud of, then maybe you'd like to take a moment today just to savour that and feel some gratitude to the people who helped you make it happen and also give yourself a little credit for getting to this point. And if you're not at that point yet, but you do have a dream that you're pursuing and you're promising yourself that you'll make it happen, then keep at it. Once upon a time, this show was my daydream. And now here it is. So it's living proof that these things can happen for real. I've recently had a similar conversation with several of my coaching clients. They're considering their next move and they have an idea for a new project and they're wondering whether to go for it. They've spent a lot of time thinking about the project and they're trying to work out whether it will be successful or, if it is successful, whether it's what they really want. In other words, is it the right move or should they do something else instead? Now, it's obviously a good thing that they're doing their research and thinking ahead before they commit. It's asking for trouble to invest a lot of time and effort, and maybe money as well, unless you've done your homework up front. 
But there are always unknowns when it comes to creative projects. As Seth Godin says, if you're doing something original, then you always have to admit to yourself that this might not work. This is why Hollywood and big book publishers back lots of horses. If they put out 10 movies or books and only one of them is a hit, it pays for all the others and then some. Obviously, they'd love to improve their odds, but if Hollywood can't do the research that will guarantee a surefire hit, with all the resources they have at their disposal, there's not much chance that you or I can do it. So, at some point, you're going to have to admit to yourself that you don't know if your next project will work. Or if it does, whether success will bring you the things you want. And you're going to have to do it anyway. Because even if your next move turns out to be a failure, artistically, financially, or however else you measure failure, at least you'll have the satisfaction of having completed what you set your mind to. What's more likely is that you'll succeed, but only up to a point. Some things will go well, others not so great. But you will learn a lot from the experience. You'll be in a different place, personally, creatively, and professionally. You'll know more and see further than you did before. And you may well come up with an idea for your next project that you'd never have reached if you hadn't done this thing first. History is full of examples of discoveries that were made in pursuit of something else that turned out to be irrelevant. For example, back in 2005, a company called Odeo was building a podcasting platform when Apple suddenly announced it was going to include its own podcasting platform in iTunes and install it on the millions of iPods they were going to sell. Realising their product would shortly be redundant, Odeo's leadership challenged the employees to come up with a new direction for the company. And the result was Twitter. Now, on the one hand, you could say that Odeo failed in its original mission, but they would never have been in a position to create Twitter if they hadn't committed to their podcasting platform and assembled a team capable of producing great things. In my own career, I've hit plenty of dead ends. But more often than not, the dead end turned out to have a left or a right turn that took me in an interesting new direction. When I first left university... I got interested in hypnosis as a way to unlock creativity. So I trained as a hypnotherapist and I made the unexpected discovery that I enjoyed working with people. Then one day I realised I was getting a lot of artists and creatives in my consulting room with all kinds of creative blocks and fears related to their work. I enjoyed working with them and started calling this part of my work coaching instead of therapy. So I learned everything I could about coaching and one day I was invited to join a small business coaching consultancy as an associate. I worked with several large corporations and started to see the impact my personal development and communication skills could have in the world of business. But at the same time, the experience confirmed my feeling that I am not a corporate person and that is not an environment that I thrive in. So I went back to college and did a master's in creative and media enterprises, studying the various theories of creativity, entrepreneurship, and the creative economy. One day, I was in the library at Warwick University, working on an essay for the marketing module, and I read an ebook by Seth Godin about something called a blog, and how 
the blog could be used to spread ideas and market a business. Instantly, I knew that this was what I wanted to do. I started the blog. Within a few months, I had an enthusiastic readership and interesting opportunities started coming my way. So whenever someone asks me how I ended up as a coach working with creatives all over the world, I say, it's a long story. Looking back, you could say that every one of those steps I took were wrong moves because I either failed or there were drawbacks to my success. Equally, you could say they were all right moves because they got me closer to where I wanted to go. These days, I'm less interested in certainty and predictability and more interested in discovery. For instance, back in 2006, when I started that first blog, I was hoping it would help me sell training workshops to creative agencies and studios in London. And it did. But looking back, that was one of the least interesting outcomes of writing the blog. Because once I started writing, and people all over the world started reading, all kinds of weird and wonderful things started to happen. I was invited to run courses and speak at conferences in faraway places. I discovered Skype and PayPal and started delivering coaching sessions to clients from the comfort of my home office. I teamed up with a couple of business partners in the US and learned to create and sell e-learning programs. Then the self-publishing revolution came along and I wrote and published a series of books for creatives. More recently, I upgraded my blog to a podcast. And now I'm having a great time making what is effectively my own radio show. Now, if you had sat me down in February 2006, when I was wondering whether or not I should start the blog, and you had told me that all of this would happen as a result, it would have blown my mind. It would have seemed too far-fetched and far too good to be true. But nowadays, I'm learning to embrace this uncertainty and even to enjoy it. So, one big difference between starting my blog and starting this podcast is I'm no longer focused on achieving a particular outcome with it. I remember when I started the blog, I was hoping it would help sell my training services and feeling quite anxious about the prospect of failure. But when I was working on the launch of this podcast, I realised that the best thing about it was I didn't know what would happen as a result of making the show. I was hopeful that it would bring me some more coaching clients and maybe sell a few more books, which I'm pleased to say is happening. But I'm betting that many more things will happen as a result of this show. And right now, I have no idea what they are. And that feels great. Just so you know, there's no master plan here. I'm not doing this show because I have a course or a new product up my sleeve that the podcast is leading up to. At some point, I'll probably write a book based on the themes of the show, but I'm not writing it right now. My only plan right now is to make the best show I possibly can and send it to you and see where that leads us. So if you want to hear how that pans out, keep listening to the show and we'll find out together. And next time you're trying to decide on your next move and you've done your research and your due diligence, and you're starting to get anxious about the outcome, then maybe it's time to stop trying to predict the future and start embracing and enjoying that uncertainty. Because the fact that you really don't know 
how your next move will turn out could well be the best thing about it. One of the themes I keep returning to in this podcast is the idea that the times we're living in are a two-edged sword. On the one hand, we're living in an age of unprecedented creative stimulation via the internet, social media, accelerating technology, and an always-on working culture. And on the other hand, we're living in an age of unprecedented distraction from focused creative work, from all the same sources. And the biggest concern for many creatives is a nagging sense that their most important work is being left undone. If you're excited by the opportunities of the creative age, but worried about the effect of all those digital distractions on your creativity, then I've written a book for you. Productivity for Creative People. It's a short, practical guide to getting creative work done in the 21st century, based on my own experience as a writer, creative entrepreneur, and father. All the ideas in the book have been road-tested in my coaching practice with creative professionals like you. So, if you want to create extraordinary work without necessarily disappearing to a cabin in the woods or even giving up your smartphone, check out Productivity for Creative People at 21stCenturyCreative.fm productivity. That's 21stCenturyCreative.fm productivity. Daniel Betcher is the founder of The Intrepid Wendell, a bespoke jewellery salon in Washington, D.C. If you visit Daniel's website, theintrepidwendell.com, you'll see he greets his visitors with the words, We love to share your joy. This is the guiding principle of Daniel's business and his mission in life. And if you visit his office in Washington, then he tells me you will see jewellery pieces you won't see anywhere else. All Daniel's creations are custom-made for his clients, and he goes to extraordinary lengths to make something special and appropriate for each client. Not only does he spend time getting to know them and their tastes, he also travels the globe to source the materials and craft skills required to make the pieces. In a typical year, Daniel and his vice president, Josh, rack up hundreds of thousands of air miles as they visit mines, industry fairs, private dealers, and craftsmen and women who are the living embodiment of generations of artistic tradition. As well as serving private clients, Daniel's jewellery is worn by the USA's two-times Olympic judo champion, Kayla Harrison, and by 10-year-old Clarissa Capuano, a global Down ambassador who raises awareness for people with Down syndrome. I've been working with Daniel for a few years and never ceased to be astonished by the boldness of his vision and the lengths he's prepared to go to to make it a reality. He's also a very sharp and engaging chap who is excellent company, so it was a pleasure to sit down with him in London to record this interview. In this conversation, Daniel talks about what motivated him to create a very unconventional jewellery business and how he's dealt with some of the challenges he faces in an industry that has some very well-established conventions. 
He also talks about his approach to designing and creating a unique piece of fine jewellery for each of his clients. Listen to this interview for an inspiring example of what it takes to succeed in a high-end creative business. You'll also learn the surprising and charming story behind the name The Intrepid Wendell. So, Dan, you're a creative guy. There's lots of things you could have done to express that creativity and do in other contexts, but what made you choose jewellery? Well, Mark, it's sort of a long and roundabout story. I have always been interested in gemstones. Uh, Cut gemstones can be very beautiful. I grew up in the Rocky Mountains, and I used to collect rocks as a boy. My grandfather was also into uh, gemstones, geodes um, that exist in the Western United States. And I have one of his geodes now that he's dead, but I have his geode. And I've looked at it for a long time. I got married uh, to um, my husband, Roy, when the laws changed and we could get married. Uh, We'd been together for 15 years before our actual wedding day. And uh, we wanted matching wedding rings. And uh, believe it or not, even in um, the eastern urban seaboard of the United States, sometimes it's hard to find somebody to make matching wedding rings. And so I had a special pattern I wanted, and I did find someone who was um, able to see us after hours to design the ring. And I went there by myself, and I don't know if he wanted more time with me, or if he just didn't want me to scare the customers away, I don't know, I can't speak for him. But it certainly felt, uh, it felt bad. So I had been looking for a new direction for my life. I found that I don't work very well for other people. I found that um, my creativity can take me off in directions that uh, can be uh, both successful and and unsuccessful if I get to do it on my own. So I uh, was looking for a creative outlet. I was in Antwerp, Belgium with a friend and we had gone there on a trip to uh, basically drink Belgian beer and smoke cigars. And we went to the uh, Cuban government's uh, cigar uh, funded store and we bought cigars to smoke, and as it turned out, the the store was closing. It was a February day. It was very, very cold out. And they had a uh, club in the upstairs of the, of the store, and the men who were in the club invited us in to spend the night. And we had a wonderful evening in that club. The The thing that happened there is I met a diamond dealer who offered to uh, teach me something about diamonds and I took him up on the offer and sort of the moment in my life when I needed something new to do, the moment in my life when I didn't necessarily want people to have to go after hours to get a set of wedding rings made for a same-sex couple and the moment in my life when I met someone who uh, liked me and I liked him and that's 
uh, sort of a general sense of how I went from a little boy picking up rocks in the Rocky Mountains to uh, making fine jewelry. So, I mean, I guess they say when the student is ready, the teacher appears. So you met this diamond dealer. He started teaching you about diamonds. At that point, was it a curiosity or were you thinking, yes, this is going to be a new business venture? Um, I knew for myself that that's where I would be spending a good part of my life. It was a much harder sell at home. Uh, right. It was more difficult to convince uh, uh, to convince my family that I actually did want to jump into that shark tank. And uh, when you are as inexperienced in that industry as I was and will be for my whole life. Um, certainly, um, you, uh, you are tempting the fates. And I have, um, uh, I have won over almost all of the people who um, thought that it was not the best place for me to be um, because they uh, see me enjoy myself so much they see me helping other people and interpreting their hopes and dreams. And um, they watch their husband, son, brother, friend, um, having such a great outlet to express his creativity and also his concern and love for joyful things in life. And I get to do that. And anyone who's ever seen me at work knows that I am... I am hopeful and happy when I'm there. And the tagline on your website that you use for the businesses, we love to share your joy. Could you talk about that a little bit? Well, the, the tagline, uh, I have to actually give credit to Roy, my husband, for as we were getting fitted for our wedding clothes, we were in a uh, fashionistas store in Washington, and she was a uh, beautiful buxom girl with a ton of blonde hair and a really uh, hard attitude. And she said to us, don't you just want to walk down that aisle and give everybody the middle finger? Um, and uh, and uh, Roy stopped and said, no, actually, what we really want is people to share our joy. And we want to share the joy of, of the people who come. Mm. And, uh, of course, her, you know, sassiness was immediately reduced. But I had, it was the perfect thing for him to say at that time. And I thought, gee, that's a great drop line. Mm. Um, and as I have gone forward, I realize that it's not a drop line. It's a great way to live. And when I think about sharing joy and that tagline, I just remember the spot of someone saying, you've got this wonderful thing, don't you want to rub it in someone's face? And the response was, why? Mm -hmm. Why would you do that? So that's where that comes from. And how do I share joy every day? I, you know, it's hard when people say, well, what does that mean? How do you operationalize sharing joy? And I'm not sure that... It is um, operationalizable. I'm not sure that it's something that you can say, um, you know, step one, empty the dishwasher. Step two, put new trash bags in the trash, you know, the trash bin. Step three, share joy. Um, you know, it's, 
it's not, <laughs> it's not like that. Um, so it, it doesn't show up in, on any of our lists, but it does show up on a sign on our on our front door, and uh, and that's uh, so. I how do I how do I share joy? I don't know. I just I do um, because life is joyful. And it, I mean, as you said, the. The jewelry industry is not an easy one to get into. There is the obvious challenges of expensive equipment and materials and all the security that goes along with that. It's one of the creative industries where it's really important to be networked into the right people. Does any of that, I mean, are these barriers to sharing joy or does the joy help you push through them? Or, you know, from the outside, it looks like there's a lot of constraints on this industry. So I have found that the constraints are not on me. The constraints are on what people put on themselves. There are people that are happy to work with me, and I enjoy them, and they enjoy me. And there are people who don't want to work with me, and that's okay. Um, they're not ready to share that joy yet. Um, I believe that someday a lot of people who aren't willing to work with me today will want to. Um, because I actually think that this message is pretty powerful. And if they don't want to, um, that's okay. They don't need to. I certainly don't need to work with them. And I, I, I have found that there are plenty of people who, uh, who are willing to champion my cause um, in a way of, of being my friend, of working with me, and I've had some people be dishonest with me. And the dishonesty is also frustrating, but, uh, you know, I learn. You, uh, what's the line you catch me once, it's your fault. Catch me twice, it's my yeah. fault. Yeah. And so I, uh, you know, I'm very careful. And there are, it is a shark tank. This, the, the gems world is a shark tank. I've, uh, you know, I've been... Uh, I've been taken advantage of, but that's, is it okay? No, it's not okay. Is it going to keep me up at night? No, no, it doesn't. And um, because there's always the next thing, there's always the next moment, there's always the next joyful experience. And there's always the next, um, there's always, there's just always the next opportunity. And I really have to keep my eyes open for those things. I can get terribly frustrated and, uh, you know, but so does everyone. Yeah, I mean, I see this a lot working with clients in different creative industries. There's for every, you know, there's, there's usually a big reason why they've chosen acting or writing novels or playing the saxophone or whatever. But whatever path you pick, there's always going to be a downside. There's always going to be the bit that you hate. And it often involves stuff around politics and bad behavior and so on. But I think when you found your path, it's about you found something that you love so much that you're prepared to put up with the bad stuff. It's a learning experience. I'm not, you know, I, I am a decidedly middle-aged man. And I am doing a lot of things now that I should have been doing when I was 24. This year, I have flown 200,000 miles to all corners of the earth, uh, sourcing gemstones, making contacts, making friends, just seeing what's there. That's hard on a middle-aged body. Um, it's, 
and I look around at some of the other people who do what I'm doing, and they're younger, and that's uh, that's easier for those people. What I have found, though, is I would never do it any other way because there is nothing like going to Sri Lanka and finding the people who make jewelry in an ancient tradition and love doing it and and are joyful in that. And I learned so much from them. And uh, and by now the airlines are nice to me. So, <laughs> so but... Uh, I actually, as an aside, I, I figured um, that at an average speed of 450 miles per hour, I have spent 18 and a half, 24-hour days on an airplane this year. Whoa. Yeah. So uh, and I, I say that because it's extreme. It's crazy. But this is um, the lengths to which I'm willing to travel to bring all of the best things into my business. So is this the intrepid part of the intrepid Wendell? No, the intrepid part isn't going to Sri Lanka. That's the fun part. <laughs> the intrepid part is getting out of bed in the morning and showing up at work. <laughs> no, the, the intrepid part is, um, is burning the midnight hours. The intrepid part is um, having problems with employees. The intrepid part is um, you know, knowing that you're having a lean month and the rent is due. That's... Um, that's the intrepid part because ultimately I have to share my own joy and that's um, much harder than sharing someone else's. So I, I, I find uh, I had to terminate an employee for his being a fool and uh, I hate that. You know, everyone hates that and it, it's, it's so much more fun to um, talk about you know, the latest styles and moonstones than it is to, to do that. But, you know, the intrepid part of Wendell is, is about facing real-life tasks like payroll and rent and, and, you know, the chair broke and you have to buy a new one. And that's the intrepid part. Okay, so that's the intrepidness. Who's Wendell? Uh, Wendell is um, a... Uh, Decidedly insecure, uh, probably six-inch-tall stuffed animal. Um, he's a rat. He doesn't like being called a rat, so he actually has decided that if he takes the T and makes it a plus sign, he's a raw plus, and that uh, seems to help him get over his insecurities about... He's, he's a what? <laughs> a, a raw plus, R-A plus sign. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so um, so he uh, he he has decided insecurities, but he's decided that if he um, names and generates himself uh, in this way, that he is um, he's uh, he's quite a quite a figure. Um, before I started the gems business, I traveled a lot in previous occupations I've had, and Roy always used to throw Wendell in my briefcase when I would travel. So I would get to Hong Kong or Bangkok or you know, Tokyo or whatever and open my briefcase and there would be Wendell staring at me. So it was, a nice, uh, it was a nice way for Roy to bring himself along on one of my journeys. It was also um, a nice way for Roy to remind me that although Wendell is really just a six inch stuffed toy, um, he can name himself whatever he wants and he can uh, be quite particular in his happiness. 
Well, maybe with Wendell's permission, we can include his photo in the show notes. So. Oh, well, I think he'd probably be fine with that. You know, he's getting quite worn. He's, uh, uh, this, this is the, the point in the interview where I plug the Velveteen Rabbit, which is <laughs> one of the best stories in all time. Um, so Wendell may actually get up and walk away from my house at some point, but, <laughs> but, but we'll see. <laughs> and, I mean, this is an unusual brand name for a jewelry business, is it not? It is. Um, it's authentic. It's completely authentic. And I'll tell you, no one ever forgets it. Yeah. No one ever forgets. Oh, aren't you guys those rat, Wendell? Yeah, that's us. That's us. Yeah, yeah. No, you don't get mixed <laughs> up with the others. No, yeah. and uh, we don't, uh, we're just completely exogenous. We go to these gem shows and uh, people for the first, the first while, it's the same people at all the gem shows. And what you're really looking for is the new product, the new mine, the new thing. And these people would see us and just assume that we were um, being sponsored by someone who was at the gem show to look for um, a nice thing for ourselves that the person who sponsored us would make for us. And after a while, people started realizing that actually we are um, part of the jewelry trade. And that didn't sit well with everybody. Um, but now, uh, you know, we show up and we, we, we'll talk to people as much as they want to talk. Um, the one thing I don't like to do is complain. Uh, you know, I'll complain to my colleagues maybe, but um, in the show, people will complain a lot about prices are too high or the selection's too poor. Or, and I won't do that. Anyway, so I don't like to complain. An exogenous. Maybe we should gloss that. <laughs> uh, my parents made me read the dictionary. No, this is not true. My parents are lovely. Um, I, uh, uh, so as far as exogenous um, goes, it's, uh, as a word, it just means you're from the outside. Right. And it um, describes us. There's got to be a word. So the opposite of exogenous is endogenous, right? Yeah. And so there's got to be a word that's halfway between the two. And if right. there's anyone that knows words, it's Mark McGinnis. Okay. Well, I, I've not come across the one that... The did. one. So, we, uh, you know, we'll never fit into um, the rooms, the diamond rooms, or, you know, whatever, in the same way that other people do. But that's okay. I don't need to. I, I, for a while, I really wanted to be part of them. And I have decided that um, it's not an us and a them. It's just yeah. a me. It's just, you know, so what do I do? How do I have my joy? How do I share my joy? How can I go into, uh, you know, into a room, you know, and be, just be me? And some people don't like it. Some people do at the end of the day. It's, it's my shop. And I think this is a big part of doing anything really original is just accepting that actually you don't fit into the recognized categories and, and being happy, you know, celebrating that. Because I think it can be a, an awkward place and sometimes a lonely place, but also a joyful place. Well, and it's the truth. Mm -hmm. So there's really not a lot I can do otherwise. Yeah. You know, I can't change what is, and that's powerfully what is. And, and, and so why don't I take 
take my interest, take my creativity, take my business skills, take my shop skills, my entrepreneurship, my family, all of that, and just let it be what it is and, and, uh, and be authentic. Maybe kind of circling back to how that translates into how you serve your clients. Because I know one of your aims is that you, people who come into the shop will see things that they won't see anywhere else. How do you make that happen? Uh, well, the first thing is you don't force it, because if you force it, then it's done. So in order to be creative uh, for myself, and I'm, you know, in this whole thing, I'm only speaking for myself, but in order for me to be creative, I need to have an arsenal of tools um, at hand. So when a client comes in and sits down and says, uh, you know, it's my 25th wedding anniversary and I've got a child named Ruby and my wife likes chandelier earrings. And I can go, okay, chandelier earrings are usually never a good choice for anybody who's in their 50s, but, you know, let's, let's explore this. And so I have my library of styles that I can look at. Um, I uh, travel to high fashion shows um, as often as I get invited to them, which hopefully becomes more and more often over time. Um, I uh, know what I can do as far as um, the engineering of the piece of jewelry. Um, there are, you know, there are limits to how you can use precious metals and precious gems. And then I know how I react to my world. And I have spent a lot of time in my life just getting in touch with where I am in my world. So when my client comes in, and, uh, and I am very, very specific about not revealing my clients' names. I think that that's a lot of dignity I can offer to them. But uh, they'll come in, they'll sit down and just say, Mr. Jones will sit across from me and he'll tell me what he's looking for. And, um, you know, depending on his personality, I may, uh, I, I'm there with my colleague and my colleague is much better. Josh is much better with the, um, you know, precise, make a bullet point thing that I am, but I may choose to talk about my artwork that I have in my office, or I may choose to um, talk about, uh, not sport, because I don't know anything about sport, but you know, I, I may choose to talk about something that seems like it's um, outside of the realm of what the person is in my office for. Um, but the fact is, someone that comes into my office to spend a lot of money on a piece of jewelry is nervous. Um, they, uh, I have um, some uh, extensive gates and doors that even get inside, and that makes people nervous. They sit across from me, and uh, the trade does not do a good job of making people feel um, treated well. And so I find that uh, the first thing to do is, you know, maybe Josh can sit and talk about, hey, what about diamonds? Hey, what about tanzanites or whatever and i can say you know i have uh, i like portraits and i have quite a few portraits in my office and i will walk a client in front of a portrait um, of a woman that i particularly like and uh, ask the client what he or she thinks and um, just getting a sense it's a portrait of a woman who is uh posing uh in a, in a bare-breasted sense. It's a modern portrait painted recently. And it's a mother of Southern U.S. mother of four 
who um, is posing as a 1960s protester. And um, you can see in this woman's eyes, the portrait artist did a great job, but you can see in the woman's eyes that she's trying to reach out from behind the mask of being an Alabama housewife and finding this, uh, this moment of protest. Um, at least that's what I see when I look at it. And so if I take a client and I put him or her in front of that portrait and say, what do you see? Suddenly the client's not talking to me. The client's talking to the woman in the portrait and the client is talking to the artist who yeah. made. And so I can share my views of, you know, of the same thing. And it's a way for me to dial into, um, is this person um, traditional? Is this person liberal? Is this person conservative? What does this person think about a bare-breasted woman? What is this? Um, you know, and so if a person, for example, is uncomfortable or um, sort of over, maybe over-sexualizes this portrait, then um, we wouldn't make a necklace that goes down into the bust. Um, or, um, you know, yeah. or if, uh, you know, the free-form expression is attractive, then I'll uh, find a free-form piece. Um, now, all of these pieces are coming from me and they're coming from my, my worldview. Um, and my worldview is that I like that portrait. And uh -huh. I can tune in to the person, and then ultimately Josh sweeps in and tells me I'm taking too much time. And he's very good at keeping me on track. <laughs> he's uh, he's, uh, he's uh, Josh is wonderful. Josh is really one of the best ones. But and he, you know he may even be the best one, except for the one I married and my parents, of course. Um, but I uh, so that's where I start. Yeah. I bring the person in the office. It's it's not um, it's not a jewelry counter. Um, I like um, I like to uh, not have the barriers of uh, sort of in Evita. There's a line that says um, we like Evita, but she should be behind the jewelry counter and not in front. And I I like to not have that division when yeah. people come into my office. I want it to be very comfortable. So we do that, and then they go away. Josh and I um, sit down and. Uh, sketch out. I'm the one jewelry designer that can't draw a circle. Um, so, <laughs> so fortunately, there are computers that do wonderful things. Um, and, you know, so we'll come up with an idea. We'll put it in front of the client. We try not to put pricing out too far in advance um, because sometimes people um, want to spend more money than they need to. Mm -hmm. Some people, you know, want to spend less money than they need to. Yeah. Um, and it's just easier to be, you know, like, these are, this is what we recommend for you and it will cost, you know, this much money. And then, you know, then we can, we can go from there. Um, that doesn't always work because we've had people come in and we spend a lot of time putting a piece together and then we talk about money and then they leave. Um, but um, you know, I'm in business to make money, but I'm also a creative guy. And even the creative process of making a new piece is useful, it's worthwhile. Okay, so that's the process from the client end in terms of divining what kind of person they are, what their tastes are, what they're looking for, getting a sense of what you'd like to create for them. What about the supply end? I mean, where, where do you source? I mean, I'm, you can't reveal specific sources, I know, but I mean, just, is this where all that airtime comes in? Yes. Um, so there are uh, gem shows all over the world, and they um, a lot of the gem shows are um, local to 
either communities, for example, the gem show in, in Basel, uh, there's a large diamond show in Basel every year, and that is native to really the European Jewish diamond community. Mm-hmm. Um, there is um, a gem show in Hong Kong every year that is really native to uh, the Japanese pearl traders. And so we travel the world uh, to, to these shows to find, you know, to get sort of as close to the mine as we can but we also uh, have made friends and contacts along the way and um, have been known to turn up unexpected in a friend's office in a faraway place. Um, <laughs> now, unfortunately, um, some of the most beautiful gems in the world come from some of the most uh, strife-torn places. Um, there are uh, some wonderful gems that come from Central Asia, especially Afghanistan. Um, for a period... Um, for probably six or seven years when the NATO forces were um, in control of a lot of Afghanistan, the mines were productive and we were getting some good peridot and some good lapis and, and uh, things that we hadn't seen in a long time. Afghanistan is less stable today. And so um, the people who are mining don't have safe means to get the stones out. And a lot of them are you know, having, having a hard time. So. Uh, so what we do is get sort of as close to those mines as we can without being foolish. Okay, so th- there's sourcing materials as well. I also know that you work with very specialist experts and craftspeople from other parts of the world. Is there anything you can say about that? Uh, yeah, there's a, um, there's a man who uh, is... Uh, a very, very famous um, pearl cutter. His name is Kazuhiro Komatsu from Yamanashi Prefecture in Japan, right at the foot of Mount Fuji. And his family have been diamond cutters for uh, for several generations. Um, they have gone from uh, making uh, industrial diamonds useful, you know, industrial products available for um, machines and things like that, um, and have gone into uh, the more creative, artistic sense of carving pearl. And uh, Kazuhito um, won uh, the All Japan Award for uh, technology um, in uh, in the way he cuts pearls. He's, he's very famous. And He's also um, a wonderful guy who's just goofy, and I enjoy his company very much. But he and I have uh, started working together on a few things. There uh, is a judo woman, a judo player called Kayla Harrison, who has won two gold medals in her division in judo at the Olympics, uh, one in London and one in Rio. And uh, Kayla has... uh, been a friend and also been someone who's done some uh, representation work for my company. But Kazuhito and I worked together to make a pearl necklace with golden carved pearls and some stunning cherry blossoms um, scattered through it. The cherry blossom is the Japanese flower of the samurai, and the samurai art is descended directly uh, without any breaks to judo. And so she has a a necklace that, that Kazuhito and I put together called Sakura no Mai, 
my Japanese is obviously not good, but the uh, the concept of the um, of the name is that Sakura is the ch- is the cherry blossom, and the Mai is the dance, and so the piece of jewelry is meant to reflect the dance of the judo player on the judo mat as she wins uh, wins her matches and ultimately wins um, the hearts of many people. So Kazuhito and I have uh, started this started this project together, and we're having fun. So you got one of the most esteemed craftsmen in Japan to create a necklace, and you put it around the neck of a two times Olympic judo champion. Okay, I guess that's the definition of pieces that you don't see <laughs> anywhere else. I mean, it's, it takes quite a lot to put to pull a piece like that together, does it not? Uh, it does. Um, and uh, one of the easiest ways to explain this is to borrow a line from Steve Jobs. And I don't know if this was original with Steve Jobs, but I'll butcher his or massacre his statement, which is, uh, life is all about connecting the dots, but you can only connect them in reverse. And so as I have uh, uh, credit to Steve Jobs again, but as I, as I move forward in life, as we all move forward in life, um, what we have to do is continue pulling these strings from our history, from the time I met Kayla, from the time I met Kazuhito, from the time that uh, you know, my father gave my mother a pearl necklace on the day I was born. And so all of these things get retrieved. And if you listen, and you listen to yourself and your history, then you'll probably come up with something that no one else came up with. Right. And, I mean, it's nice that we can talk about the Kayla Harrison story, because I know most of your work is, is private, and you can't talk about the things that you're creating for clients for confidentiality. But I mean, this is one of the things that impressed me about you when I first met you, which is you go to these extraordinary lengths, unreasonable lengths, some people might say, to create something unique. And are there any other examples of this that you could talk about that are public? Well, there's a, there's a little girl called Clarissa. Uh, her last name is Capuano, but we just call her Clarissa. And she's nine years old, and she was born with Down syndrome. And her parents um, have just loved her to death. I mean, not, not to death, but they just love their girl. Um, and she is um, a princess on feet. And she's, she's just a, a charmer. And she is the face of Global Downs. Um, and there is an organization called Global Downs that, um, that does red carpet fashion shows. With, uh, with celebrities who may have uh, people with Downs in their families or have some other uh, reason to be interested in the topic. Um, but coming up on the 11th of uh, this month, on the 11th of November 2017 in Denver, is a, is a red carpet event called Be Beautiful, Be Yourself. And it's um, a series of designers, runway models, and boys and girls with Down syndrome who uh, are walking a carpet for charity. So I heard about this, and I decided that this nine-year-old little girl needed a tiara. So we are making a tiara for Clarissa. And uh, I designed it with a bunch of stones that no one's even heard of. I think I collected them in South Asia somewhere. And the, the, um, 
the tiara is called Candyland, and it is being manufactured today, actually. And it's, um, uh, you know, making a tiara is sort of a fun and crazy thing, and most people think of diamonds and dripping and all of that with tiaras. And I thought, how do you take a tiara, the most regal princess thing in the world, and put it on the head of a nine-year-old girl who is going to steal the show? And um, so we made lollipops out of moonstones. <laughs> it's, it's, we made jewelry lollipops. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, and she'll look like a princess. It's uh, so that's that's Clarissa, and um, and uh, the manufacturer will be uh, will be tough actually because uh, there are some technical issues, but but that's so much fun, and that's. Uh, I mean, isn't that fun? That's the greatest thing. I, I, it's delightful. And, you know, these are two completely different pieces for two very different people. But the thing I love about both of them is you've looked really... It's almost like, you know, you're trying to look into somebody's soul and say, well, what can I create that would express something of that or would resonate with that? Well, how does my soul touch someone else's? And where's that, where's that joy? Where's the sharing? Where's... Because I, I can't tell someone what they want because I'm not them, but I can know what I think uh, would be a good expression of, of what they're talking about. And at that moment, the creative process touches between the two, between the two people. And that doesn't mean we don't make mistakes along the way, but, but that's okay. I don't need to talk about my mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> You can make them behind closed doors. Exactly. And fix them behind closed doors. Correct. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, what does the future hold for Wendell? Where, where do you want to take this venture? So I have a young man that works with me called Josh, um, Josh Collier. He's 26. He's just a joy. And um, the way that Josh and I met doesn't... Uh, takes too long to explain for this program, but he uh, is really enjoying working at Wendell. And so one of the things I would like to do is make sure that Josh can stay at Wendell as long as he wants and have something to do in the future. I don't have my own you know, children to pass this on to necessarily. So um, that's important. Um, I would like to have a successful business that people, you know, I would like to have a brand you know, a recognized line, and not necessarily recognized by mass culture, but recognized by people who know that if you want the best thing and you want it to reflect your best self, that you should come talk to me. And that's the best, uh, that, and that's the best thing I could offer. I don't have 100 years to do this. I mean, in 20 years, I'll be not middle-aged anymore. And... Uh, so I've got to make hay. I, I've, got to, I've got to work on this. Um, and I, I would like, at the end of my time with Wendell, uh, to make some sort of, of charitable foundation. And what I hope that foundation can do is actually go to alleviate the stress and strain of the people who mine these gemstones. Their lives are very hard. They don't necessarily make a lot of money. And... Uh, they, um, there are, uh, I think there are some things that could be done um, in order to um, bring uh, some dignity, not just from the jewelry salon, but all the way to the jewelry mine. 
Um, and does that mean that um, you know everyone that mines sapphires in Sri Lanka is going to be wealthy? No, it doesn't mean that. But I think that there are things to do to help. Um, you know, obviously things like healthcare and sanitation and all of that. So it's time for the creative challenge. So this is the part of the show where I ask my guest to set you, the listener, a challenge that you can go away and undertake to stretch yourself in an unusual direction creatively and probably as a person. So Dan, what challenge would you like to set our listener? Well, earlier in our conversation, I described Steve Jobs' statement about moving forward in life but connecting the dots in reverse. And in doing that, I have found that, uh, like I said, you can find some creative spaces in yourself and also some very special ways to touch people in new ways. And a challenge that I would bring out for someone is to find someone that you would not ordinarily associate with. And in the city where I live, there is a newspaper called Street Sense, which is sold by people with no fixed address. And uh, they sell it for $2 a paper and get to keep a certain amount themselves. And uh, I have gotten to know some of the people who sell Street Sense. And although you would think that we would have nothing in common, when I started reaching backward into myself and watch them do the same thing, you would be surprised at what you have in common with a person. So I think a good way for a creative to maybe come out of his or her shell a little bit and find a way to interact with a client would be to do something like go to your city or wherever you live and find someone who is either uh, selling the big issue or working at a petrol station or or, or doing some some line of occupation that you wouldn't necessarily consider yourself to be close to or or maybe maybe uh, the right thing for someone to do is to go talk to the bank teller or you know just find someone who's outside of your normal zone mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then talk to them using your space and their space and find the space where you connect. And it doesn't mean you have to be friends with them forever. And it doesn't mean you even have to ever talk to them again. But um, the challenge I would make is to find that person who, again, to use the word exogenous, uh, mm-hmm. is outside of your realm. And just uh, talk to them until you find the space that the two of you touch. And if you can do that with someone who is different than you, you can find joy. You'll be surprised at the joy you'll find. You'll also be surprised at how good you can be with your clients. Thank you. That's a beautiful challenge. So, Dan, where can people go to find you and Wendell? Well, uh, Wendell holds court, usually, um, <laughs> in, uh, in, the, uh, in, uh, in Washington, D.C. We have an office. Um, we don't have a jewelry store. We don't have a, a storefront, but we have a sixth-floor office in an office building, which is surrounded by lawyers and lobbyists like everything else in Washington. And uh, you can find us on the Internet at The Intrepid Wendell, and that's... T-H-E-I-N-T-R-E-P-I-D-W-E-N-D-E-L-L.com. Um, or uh, you can call me up. Or uh, If you go to the website, it's all on there. Um, we love to have people over. Um, we uh, welcome you to come in, 
if you're ever in Washington, drop by for lunch or, or a cup of coffee or a glass of wine. Um, we're not allowed to drink wine until after five. That's our rule. <laughs> <But> <laughs> so, um, of course, rules are made to be broken, and it's my shop. So, uh, anyway, th so that's where you can find us. You can also find us on um, a United Airlines or an ANA airplane, zooming between any uh, any two remote points in the world. And uh, if you ever get to a gem show, we are the two guys who don't look like anyone else. <laughs> and, and we have fun. <laughs> we do have fun. Okay, and obviously we will link to the website from the show notes. Um, with your permission, Dan, maybe we can have some eye candy in the show notes, some of the beautiful things that you've made. Sure. And I, I encourage you to go over to theintrepidwendell.com and have a browse through. And there's some lovely photographs on there. So, Dan, thank you so much for sharing your joy with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you, as always. Oh, thanks, Mark. I, I, am, I am enjoying myself quite a bit. So, thank you. You have been listening to The 21st Century Creative, hosted by me, Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned, as well as all the archived episodes at 21stcenturycreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets on carving out an original creative career, you can sign up at 21stcenturycreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative interested in getting my help as a private coaching client, you can learn about how I help my clients at 21stcenturycreative.fm slash coaching. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.